Welcome back to the Regeneration Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm I'm your co-host Michael Martin here from the the cloudy, actually the Michaelmas Eve. Yeah, I was going to mention in, that. in the state of Michigan, and and there's my my co-host Michael Sauter. Mike, how are you? Good. I uh, Michaelmas is around. My name is Michael. That time of year, and uh, you got my my birthday. My birthday was. Uh, on the same days, Johnny Appleseeds and T.S. Eliot's and George Gershwin's and Olivia Newton-John's. And that was uh, two days ago, September 26th. All right. And my daughter, Amen. who loves using a cricket, wrapped the Regeneration podcast on a sweatshirt and it made me smile. Uh, all right. So today, we actually, <laughs> this is, you know, some people don't believe in karma. And then I tell this story. Yeah. It's such an interesting story. So. Our guest today is, is Spencer Clavin, and before I introduce him formally, I, I have such a story to tell you. So back uh, almost exactly a year ago, November of last year, yep. right, at, I mean, the day after my, my mother's funeral, I got on a plane to head to Washington, D.C. for uh, a kind of a colloquium or you know discussion, a symposium on the Brothers Karamazov, put on by the Liberty Fund. Which I was kind of looking forward to. I have a couple of friends I knew were going to be there. And actually, Mike, our former guest, Adam Simon. I that's yeah, right. That's met him there as well. Yeah. So I go there and I get there early. And it's in Georgetown. So I, I, my first my first order of business was to find the exorcist steps. Which I did. Huh. Took a picture because I was traumatized as a How teen. many square blocks is Georgetown? Did you have to look for a long time? I don't words? know. It's it's beautiful. I've been there, but it's always I drive through. Somebody takes me to a restaurant and I'm out. But I don't have a feel for the Restaurants are really good. But, uh, yeah. but I, I don't know how big it is exactly. But we were in Georgetown. And the first night, we had like a dinner to get to know each other. But when we started the actual conversations, we all, we had assigned seating. And I was seated next to this this younger man, younger than we are, who was really really smart guy, and had all kinds of kinds of insightful things to say about what we were what we were talking about. And at one point, he referred to one of my my heroes, right, Thomas Traherne, and one of mine too. So at break, I said, you know, I would go out for drinks every night and have dinner and. And I'm telling this young man, I said, yeah, yeah, that's interesting that you're mentioning Mr. Hearn. I was probably my proudest moment in, in my academic career has been when I I wrote the foreword to or an introduction to uh, the centuries of Thomas Hearn. <laughs> he said, oh, you mean this one? He was actually he was quoting from the one I I edited and intro introduced. Parma. So, and we were sitting right next to each other. That's kind of the funny thing. Mm -hmm. And then. Speaking of Washington, D.C., I was invited this past July to, to come and participate in a conference uh, in in Washington. And I was one of the speakers. And guess who one of the other speakers was? The same guy. I'm guessing. That's right. The same, my guy. Head. The same, I mean, guy, the same he, guy. This guy sounds great. I don't know who you're talking about, and, Mike, but no. uh, it sounds like a lovely guy. guy. Yeah. The guy. Yeah, it was I know, guy. It just, I don't know. I mean, you know, I could, what I, what it is that, you know. I feel like God threw us together for some reason, Spencer. Uh, brother, I feel the same way. I mean, uh, the most uncanny aspect of that experience for me is we had that exchange downstairs after in the conference room. And then we all kind of went our separate ways for a break. And I, as I typically do, have a bad habit of scrolling on Twitter. So I was scrolling on Twitter and kind of chatting with people. And I was having this really interesting exchange. And then I was like, oh, it's you. I'm having, I'm talking to you. I've just left being with you in person. And now I suddenly realize that you are, in fact, Sophiologist. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, at Sophiologist. And um, no, I mean, there there is something about that book in particular. I have this joke that God prepares my reading lists. Mm -hmm. And by that, I just mean that the stuff you happen upon isn't turns out not to really be stuff that you're happy well you know I, one interjection Soloviev has as a line in one of his uh visions of sophia a line that says she sophia chose my every book wow she chose it's beautiful right i've told yeah. my wife that's my epitaph it's terrific it's like Absolutely. place golden thread for books yeah. yes that's that's exactly right and i have certainly found that to be true in fact i was just at the landmark booksellers uh, the other day which is this beautiful bookshop in in franklin tennessee 
And I kept walking by this book and thinking that's not something I would ever read. Uh, but it just kept catching my eye. It's called The Three-Body Problem. It's this Chinese science fiction novel. So I pick it up and lo and behold, you know, the first chapter is about exactly what I'm currently writing about. And so, I mean, that, that sort of stuff just happens all the time. And Traherne was one of those books that just felt particularly kind of luminous. The, the only time I've had that experience quite so strongly was when I found Owen Barfield's Poetic Diction by chasing yeah. down a mm -hmm. citation in C.S. Lewis. And um, and so for that book then to be the one that was you know, edited by the guy I was sitting next to, and I think it might have been you who brought him up first, uh, Michael, actually. And then, you know, we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And yeah, no, it, it um, it's these things. Once you start to look at them, you kind of can't look away. You know, it, it becomes impossible to ignore. And, so, and we keep bringing brought together. So yeah. Natural, exactly. you should come on the program. We now, haven't done a show on Barfield. Like, we got to take a note. We haven't done a full one, which is crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, mental note. So obvious, right? Maybe we'll have Spencer on again. <laughs> if yeah. you do, I mean, I would love to come back if you do. There's a guy, a Jordan Peters. I mean, a Jordan. Uh, I'm sorry, Jason Peters from Front Porch Republic. Yeah, he did his PhD on Barfield. Right, right. Yeah, he's and he's so damn funny. And also, when we get back to the introduction, no. Yeah, sorry about. Oh, that. right, sorry. Now, Spencer is a is a scholar. He's actually he's, he was he's also a singer. He he was now you got your doctorate from Yale, is that correct? Uh, actually, the PhD is from Oxford. I was at an oh, undergrad at Yale. Yeah, your, your undergrad was from Yale. Yeah, where you were where where you were in the noted uh, singing group, the Whiffin Poofs. Correct. <laughs> you pronounced it perfectly. Yes. I, and, I and then, well, I, and that's one of the things that came up. We were in in DC that one time, and yeah. so you got your, your doctorate from from Oxford in classics. That's right. That's and right. what did you write your dissertation on? Yeah. Um, ancient Greek music was my subject. Right. And I was particularly intrigued by the philosophy of semiotics at the time. So it was the semiotics of ancient Greek music, but kind of branched out and in, also into performance theory and reconstruction and how much we can know about how everything sounded. So, mm -hmm. And and the, what's interesting about that is because now Spencer's most recent book is How to Save the West. Hmm. And I'm. I have to assume that um, Spencer's love for the classics has something to do with, it. and I, and I, have, I, I share that love, though I'm not as expert in it as Spencer is. And uh, in fact, you'll like, you'll like this story. So we homeschooled our kids with with a kind of Waldorf classical high school curriculum. They, they, the elementary curriculum was definitely a great Waldorf. blend. But my my youngest daughter just started college this semester as an art major, and she when she was texting me when she when she first said, I'm really really nervous about this philosophy class, Dad. I really know what to do. I'm <laughs> kind of scared. The guys, the guy's scaring me. And then all of a sudden she gets into it, and I'm getting I'm getting texts from her all the time, and and she texted me yesterday. I love. Why, why is philosophy so cool? <laughs> and I said, because you're asking the right questions. Um, but what I also notice is that having taught in higher education for, gosh, 20, almost 25 years now, uh, the, the life questions are, are obvious by their absence in, in yeah. most of higher education these days. That's and right. this is... If you read the introduction and just get in the beginning of Spencer's book, How to Save the West, this is exactly where, where Spencer's going. Mm. Um, and so, Spencer, what caused you to write this book, first of all? Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, there, there's maybe a, a bridge that I can draw from the kind of squirrely academic writing Greek music to the person with enough kind of uh, chutzpah and and perhaps foolhardiness to write a book titled How to Save the West. Um, <laughs> and, and and that is that, you know, I, I adored my time as a graduate student. I have nothing but good things to say about the particular, you know, path that I took and the people that helped me along the way. But I also encountered exactly what you're describing, Michael, this feeling that somehow we were dealing with secondary questions almost all the time as as professional academics or professional academics in training um it was like we were we were talking about how to paint the house but we hadn't talked about the scaffolding or the structure and and, and those primary questions 
have kind of become unfashionable to ask or talk about in part, I think, because there's this sense that, well, they've already been talked to death and you have to find some niche where you can make your mark. And so you just take it as read that everybody has already said everything that can be said about meaning and truth and beauty. And now we're going to kind of embroider the edges of the various things that have been said. Um, and that was just fundamentally unsatisfying to me, especially because I had always known that I was not in this for, you know, the academic laurels. I very much was in it for what I could kind of offer. And I've, I've always loved reading and I've loved the great texts, but I most especially have loved uh, kind of presenting and, and popularizing this stuff. I, I really do feel and have experienced, as, as you, Michael, have as well to much greater degree, that this is not kind of a, a a hobby or a side interest. This is kind of like urgent lifeblood. And when you give it to people mm -hmm. in a way that they can digest, they respond that way. And so as my career kind of started to get going out of grad school, it really did turn in a much more generalist direction. I felt that I'd kind of gotten this, this backing in the classics, and now it was time to start kind of engaging with the world. And that's what led me to my podcast, Young Heretics, which just is, I call it the classical education you didn't know you were missing. It's just, you know, all I do every week is talk about some great text or concept or, you know, historical moment. And there is this enormous hunger that I met through that, you know, just kind of thinking that I was going to be talking to nobody and finding that there are all these people out there, you know, just right. really um, enriched by that and and eager to wrestle seriously with rich and and in some cases difficult complicated texts um as long as they feel they're they're convinced that y you really do believe it matters as long as they can hear from you that this is something that has something to say to them um they they genuinely do respond and this was a great joy to me and it's out of that sense of need that I wrote the book it it really is kind of just a, a introduction in in the most um kind of direct and urgent way i i knew how to kind of say okay here are five major areas where you th things seem to be falling apart um what's under the surface what are the major first order questions that we are struggling with or failing to struggle with that have brought us to this point and what are the resources that are on offer to us from a tradition that maybe goes deeper than like last night on the daily show um, and so that's what the book's about yeah and 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 i have to say i mean this is a rare gift that you have because oh, uh, you. you don't see it too too often in um people with this kind of uh academic background you write in prose people can actually read and then it's <laughs> and it's appealing i mean it's it's you have beautiful style and it's 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 very personable but it's not intimidating you know you're not a you're not an academic show of speaking to the esoteric <laughs> you know Thank which you. is nice i mean it, that's i mean i think that's like you said you, you know you became more of a generalist and i think that's i did too yeah. for for expressly those reasons because this is not about um for me and I, I can tell for you it's not about you know um taking off boxes on the way to tenure or or even beyond and you look at that and it's, to me it seems like an, a rather impoverished existence <laughs> but what you what you're tussling with it, both in this book and i think like for, in your podcast and this is what I, I love about your podcast it's you're you're contending with you know the classical life questions why are we here what gives life meaning and and so much of academic discourse these days does not do that at all. Right, right. Does yeah. not do that at all. And and the thing is, I, I've noticed in the classroom, and even today I was teaching, uh, I was asked by this local community college to teach a humanities course. <laughs> and yeah. I blew them off all summer. I said, <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And the kids, they just want, they want to hear those questions because they, you know, we all, I think, have the life questions burning inside of us and we don't know there's a forum for that and yeah. when you give when you give students or other human beings and i think this is what you see with the attraction that people have had for uh jonathan pajot and others 
I remember that. I remember that. Loves bugging me. Yeah. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> hey. I remember well, when I optimistic. saw the title of the book, Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I was over 21. Yeah. But I got yeah. all of college and one third of my classes. Uh, my roommates told me I went to less than one third of my classes total. I did fine. It was a decent college. Uh, and if I had to take a humanities exam, I'd go to the Collier's Encyclopedia, the World Book Encyclopedia, <laughs> and another one. And I would read about St. Augustine's City of God. And I would read about Dostoevsky. Yep. And then I, I would write my essays and everything. And I just had no idea. Then I, I fell into something of a depression and, and did a little bit of reading. It was how I stumbled onto my friendship with this Hungarian novelist, Stephen Visenchy. I was mm. lost. My mom died. And then... Uh, then the notion, he put me into a book, his book, The Rules of Chaos, changed my life. And then I just saw the power of ideas. Then I saw there was a book called Ideas Have Consequences. But I was 21. Yeah. And I avoided the whole thing. I had a great mm. time. But I'm not even saying like I was a party animal. I, sure. I didn't know the world existed. Sure. Yeah. I I just had the most extraordinary conversation with a fella. Eric Rostand is his name. And he has undertaken this kind of enormous course through the great books he's picked 200 of them and that's going to be his life for like the next 10 years you know so wow. we were we were chatting and one of the things he said is that when he embarked on the whole enterprise he had a conversation with a fellow that had gone through a master's course in literature and then kind of dropped out of a phd program but had spent some time at the doctorate level and felt of course, incredibly intimidated as, as in his view, sort of an amateur thinking, well, I'm going to be telling this guy who's read all this stuff. He'd read none of the books that 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 Eric had undertaken to read, you know, yeah. just talking about like Moby Dick and Crime and Punishment and these real doorstopper and, and kind of landmark texts. And it was exactly that same thing. He had read about reading them. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly a feature of my experience as well, that the people who preface their conversations by saying something like i'm not that smart mm -hmm. um those are the people that you're about to have a really great conversation with because mm -hmm. they what they mean by that is i for whatever reason didn't gain access to the kind of you know gatekeeping credentials that would enable me to feel a sense of ownership over the camp so well said thank mm -hmm. you and in a way what happens i think it's happened is uh the the internet in these for, you know, forums like this right yeah this is the new agora right yeah. that's like absolutely right? so we're totally so we're heading for hemlock that's where we're i, I was going to ask you about hemlock, that spencer yeah. you know yeah. being younger what can you say about the internet and like maybe these young guys and things like that you know yeah. so you know michael called it the agora help give me a little shape of that like my own children know that I don't even know this medium Michael are on right now. You know, they can't believe we haven't, you know, made little huh. you know, two minute spots right, and said right, own somebody and all that stuff. But like, <laughs> are there real possibilities or do you see crowd formations out there? How do you separate between crowd formations and political tribalism and these people who are doing this thing online that we're talking about? Yeah. And maybe the best way to describe myself on this issue is that I am a screen skeptic, but an internet optimist. Mm -hmm. That is, I think we have a really unhealthy relationship with our physical devices and with their place in kind of our physical world. But the form, the format of internet connectivity has this enormous potential that we are yeah. only beginning to unlock and to reckon with. And the best way I know how to describe it is to say that when I started my podcast, the first episode when we launched... I had this idea in my head that the function of the internet in in sort of the modern consciousness has been to shrink the attention span. And mm -hmm. so I brought to bear upon this first episode my whole training, sort of writerly training, which has always been to cut, 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 you know, to really just pare things down and hone to exactly the, you know, 800 words that you have mm -hmm. to say. And so I put out a 30-minute episode on the Iliad, and I thought, you know, just, just this enormous text, this huge topic, and I'm just really going to kind of uh, nail it in this in this short span. And the first thing that everybody said, you know, we got a very positive reaction, but the only criticism people had was, say more, talk longer, ramble, oh, like go down these 
rabbit holes that you are mentioning you're not going down because i would say things like there's this whole you know scholarly discourse that we don't want to get into and people are like no no get into it you know? wow 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 yeah. that's a yeah. fascinating story really 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 good. yeah yeah and even just the other day i wrote a little newsletter in which i sort of jokingly said don't even get me started about the or three dynasty of ancient Mesopotamia, wow. but but maybe kind of do get me started about it. And immediately somebody <laughs> wrote back like, "I want to get you started about that." You yeah. know, like please say more. And 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 what I realized is that many of the criticisms about the internet that have been levied are actually about TV. Um, and and the the kind of attention span criticism is is actually a TV era criticism, which which it's TV that has sort of shortened everything into these sound bites and trained us really to only focus on these little little snippets. And we did carry that mentality over into the advent of the internet, but at the same time, we didn't really recognize that the internet was doing something completely different, and that was expanding into this incredibly relational, um, oral format that it, that is an agora. I mean, uh, uh, Michael used the perfect term agora, right? It is. It is it's yeah. an oral culture, um, which, which represents itself sometimes as a written culture. Um, and that is just, a, you know, there, there's enormous potential there for open-endedness and for just this kind of serious um, person-to-person engagement with people that just, just, just want to know what you have to say that is of value. It's like what they, um, you know, the, the Luke says in Acts about everybody at the Areopagus was just waiting to hear what new thing could be yeah. said. And that's why they listened to Paul. And that's kind of where we're, where we're at, I think. You know what and jumps think... out at me is just one one insight would be like a book on that phenomenon. If you were to write that up, it would have to have an interesting chapter, wildly interesting chapter on Internet pornography. Right. Because, yeah. uh, you know, that access point, it's all visual. Uh, when I had to look at the problem on campus from campus ministry in like 29 years, you know, you could see that. Young people, if they were just going to go to the, the strip club, they had to go to the seedy part of town. There was all this embodied stuff. Mm. But once it's in the house, right? And that, you know, if that's, you know, that whole idea of the, mm. which way you're going to go, you're going to choose life, you're going to choose death on this mm. thing, you know? Yeah, yeah so I, used, I, tell, I was just telling some students yesterday, I said, when I was a kid, you had to make an effort to find pornography. <laughs> you know? And you but, had to look I like think, a fool in front of your friends, point, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Going back to the point, I think, you know, the weird thing is, is, is you're mentioning Spencer with, the, you know, this kind of, you know, commercial to commercial attention span. But the other thing of it is, and, you know, as you say, you know, you had people telling you, come on, go, go there, go, yeah. there, go down the rabbit hole. Great story. Because in these longer form podcasts, I listened to one that was an hour and a half long today. It allows people to do, it's almost like the anti-internet. It's the anti-fragmentation because you're you're following this long like this discursive conversation between people and you're participating and it's a participation in a in thought yeah that that we that are that most of our uh, culture doesn't do right also you know it's got a weird thing in that way right I mean on the one hand of course. You know, would it be better if all of us could get together like over a whiskey and have this conversation? Yeah, sure. I mean, embodiment, I think, is always the ideal. And which but Spencer and I have done. Precisely. We have done. Yeah, and right, we'll right. Do it again, began there, too. In a monastery. I, I think even the fact that your first meeting was in flesh is yes. different than if the first one was online or mm-hmm. not. It wasn't like right or wrong, but it helps. Yeah, Spencer does make a mean martini. I just <laughs> I, I I screwed up the first martini, and Joe, our mutual friend, has never let me live it down because I put orange bitters in it and turned this bright shade. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, okay, so that's the ideal, and and I I do think that the the right model here is kind of concentric circles expanding outward, like our embodied life as as this kind of core, and then our technology sort of augmenting that rather than replacing yeah. it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, how many of these sorts of conversations are even going on outside of the podcast world? You right, know, right, the, right. suddenly you have this place where the, these sorts of things happen. And yeah, and you guys and we and Peugeot and, uh, you know, John Verveke and all these guys can just kind of um, expand a little bit intellectually. So let's go back to your book a little bit. So sure. you mentioned you, you, you're uh examining five different areas. Why don't you give us an idea what those areas are? Yeah, sure. So they're called crises in the book, and I kind of take care to um, 
specify that I don't mean that in the kind of news cycling way that you hear about the COVID crisis and the uh, supply chain crisis and so forth. Um, the the point is to kind of reclaim that word for its original Greek meaning, which is a decision point, a, a choosing between two ir irreconcilable options, right? The verb krino in Greek means I judge or I decide. And kind of the, the governing thought of the book is that underneath many seemingly disparate news stories, internet phenomena, trends, and so forth, there are actually first order questions at stake that that the internet has forced us to reconsider. And they are the ones that we've just been talking about. What are, you know, what's my place in the universe? Is there a God? How do I know? And so forth. And so the five crises are about each about one of those questions. The first, the reality crisis is about the problem of truth. Is there truth? How do we access it? What What's its nature? Which has been, I think, kind of a, an issue that has been gradually gaining steam for my entire life and has now reached something like a crisis point. Um, then sort of related to this, like, what is the nature of our embodied selves why are we the way we are and that's the body crisis which you see now yeah. in this both in the kind of transgender phenomenon but also in its you know next gen analog which is the transhumanist situation yeah. and of course nobody writes with greater you know perspicacity about this than than you michael there there is just you know a, a deep underlying horror of the human body which is at once quite ancient and also kind of unrealized and and new in in uh, incipient in our culture so that's what the that section is about the body crisis and the next two are kind of connected there's the crisis of meaning how do we make meaning how do we communicate to each other why do we do that um and then finally the crisis of religion which is you know what is the what's behind all of our communication what what is our meaning grounded in because i think that's ultimately a religious question ultimately points us mm -hmm. beyond matter since all of the signs and symbols we use are in some way material but must refer i think to something immaterial or supernatural and then finally um just because i thought it would be worthwhile to kind of show the applicability of all these big questions to the immediate sphere there is a political crisis chapter on the crisis of the regime, uh, which has to do with just where's America go headed and and how do we understand America's current situation in light of a kind of longer view of political philosophy. That's what that was mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question. Oh, my. I, I, I have these conversations regularly with, with young people. Yeah. Um, but here's the here's the thing, though, right, Spencer? Um, yeah. It's called How to Save the West. And in, implicit there is it, it's in trouble yeah right so what is what's what what what's gone what's gone wrong in your estimation yeah. that you that it needs saving yeah i mean there's kind of two ways of looking at this question one is that the west is is perennially on the verge of collapse and that this is actually part of its nature and i think there's a lot of truth to this that in fact, one of the hallmarks of Western thought is uh, Renaissance rebirth and, of course, resurrection. And so you see moments, often moments of technological crisis, take, for instance, the printing press, you know, um, at which point many of the kind of settled assumptions of, you know, a previously prosperous age start to break down and collapse. And these big kind of first order questions become at you know come to the fore again um i think of the you know the protestant reformation as as one such moment when it seemed as if we had kind of settled on some things about where divine truth comes from and how we know it and so forth and yet suddenly there was kind of more to to know um so on the one hand you can say well this is always happening but i do make the case in the book and believe still that we are at one of those particularly acute moments of crisis and my sort of suspicion about why this happens or why it's happening now is that the truths that the western canon and the western tradition are designed to deliver are ultimately transcendent truths eternal truths divine truths and as such 
there actually is no permanent human or physical clothing that we can offer them except ourselves, except the tradition and the communication of wisdom from generation to generation. Um, and, and if we attempt to kind of nail down a set of rules or laws or even you know, artistic images that, you know, will stand for all time without our ever having to get beneath the skin and reconsider them, um, then we are engaged in what the Christian tradition identifies as idolatry. Like that's why that's kind of the core sin is because we are as fleshly beings living in time, always tempted to do that. And I think we, you know, the have of idolatry. Thanks. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that the, this is we mentioned Barfield, you know, Perhaps yeah. his his greatest book is is saving, saving the appearances, the yeah. right? Which is a study in idolatry, and and it's it's from him in large part that I kind of draw my understanding of that word. Are that theologian William Cavanaugh is doing his book in idolatry? Yeah, a new one. And I was hanging out with him one time, and I was saying, "Read Barfield," and I don't know if he did. I don't know if he brought it into mm. his book, but we're waiting for it to be published. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it's an urgent subject, and it's one that um, I think. In, like many kind of quote unquote church words, um, it, it's very difficult to puncture. And this is, in fact, another instance of idolatry. It becomes very difficult to puncture the sound of the word, which kind For of. For Berjayev, he uses, you know, objectification to capture about 80%. Don't you think of what yeah. we're getting? Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And in fact, one reason why our present moment is so cute, I would suggest, and this is really the topic of my, you know, we're now kind of branching into the topic of my next book but but still you know one reason why uh our current problem is so acute would would be that our crisis is specifically a crisis of objectification and and how to save the west does kind of deal with this that that really in in various forms what we are dealing with mm -hmm. is the tempting but ultimately fallacious idea that we can locate truth in objects outside entirely outside of us independent of us mm -hmm. and this is you know right at the core of the scientific revolution for all of its benefits it also does have this implicit it's right the there beginning. with archimedes right you know the whole yeah. notion that you can get a an archimedean point you know that's yeah. rootless and fleshless and comment on things you know exactly exactly mm -hmm. that's that's beautifully put and it also you know comes up in laplace right that Absolutely. You know, there were some minds standing outside of things um but it's in, you know, it's in Galileo too. It's like it, it, it's very, it runs very deep, and it's um, Kant, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think that uh, we are currently really up against the choice whether to persist in that mm -hmm. fallacy, which which will destroy us and is destroying us, and has taught us basically to to regard ourselves as hunks of meat, or to admit what many different sources of knowledge are currently kind of screaming at us which is that we are essential to the creation of reality like we have a, a real participation in now i can see residence. so clearly why you guys met and you're going to stay in touch for the rest of your lives <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the uh that's the the place where you come together so well you know that's right that's right and, yeah, and yeah, every yeah. time i talk to michael i come away with like five different things i have to read because yeah. he's been thinking about this stuff for so long yeah well I, well i think what we're describing too i mean you know, is, you know, that objectification you're speaking of yeah. is what it, it, it ends in scientism, right? Right. And, yes. the, and the counter to that is, and I, this is what I think you're treating in your book, is um, the, the wisdom tradition, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And not just in, this, uh, in a sophiological sense. I mean, I taught a course, um, which was a blast to teach where where it was a kind of an intro to philosophy course but I, I i did it by drawing on the wisdom traditions of the east and the west and we did the Tao de jing and we did the tibetan book of the dead and, and marcus aurelius and because um that like i i like you i feel that's the antidote in a way to the insanity of the way we, the world is right now and one of the things one of my first uh, um, professional associations <laughs> with Spencer was when he asked me to write uh, a piece on transhumanism, right? And and he he gave it the title 
the droid stares back, which <laughs> when I was tr looking it up on the internet, I misspelled droid as druid. And when I was <laughs> Substack, I think I'm just going to. That's right. Okay. <laughs> that's great. I didn't that's know great. That. I no, see. I... I saw that. And I thought that you had already landed on that title. And I was like, wow, we were totally on the same wavelength. Like, okay, great. <laughs> we were vibing <laughs> so bad. <laughs> yeah, we were meta vibing. That was my map of misreading. Yeah. Don't you think, Spencer, too, that that the subjectification piece, um, idolatry, Barfield, but also the, uh, you know, William Blake's four levels of awareness from generation to uh, uh, Ulro to generation to Beulah to Eden. You know, it's all about and this is, again, mm -hmm. dovetails where I'm sure you've seen in Michael's work, just the raising our levels of perception. You know? Yeah. Yes. Another um, just truly bonkers series of coincidences that emerged out of the last time Michael and I were together was that a friend, a mutual friend of one of the participants at that conference was Glenn Williamson, who is, who listens to the podcast and has been in touch with me for a long time. But at that conference, unrelated to um, all of this, uh, at, over our, you know, third or fourth whiskey or so i i said to michael like i need to start to read rudolf steiner who do i read and <laughs> i get home and i get an email from glenn that's about my latest podcast episode that says you know you really I, i've been holding back because i didn't want to like impose but you really just are sounding like you need to read rudolf steiner and can I send you to a so wild? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I said, yeah, Glenn, I guess you can. Like, um, and and so yeah, so I've been sort of finally, and and of course, that's wild. It's insane. It's insane. And of course, but tell us a little bit about like what are your is somebody like entering? You're going to help so many of our listeners. Like, oh yeah, how, how did you enter? How is it working for you? What seems batshit crazy? Yeah. So I will back up and say that I kind of dipped my toe or like saw the threshold up ahead when I started reading Barfield because Barfield's okay, right. a big Steiner it's a great case. guy. Yeah. And I actually discovered fairly recently that Barfield wrote dialogues, you know, between um, Worlds Apart and um, I just finished. Voice. I just finished on Ancestral Voice again uh, yeah. two days ago. It's an amazing book. That book. You know, think of our policing question we're having now. It's treated in the book. Yes. You know, yes. With clarity, with clarity. Yep. It is. And actually, I find his dialogues perhaps clearer. I think his prose is is helped by the dialogue form in, in some way. Um, and so both of those books were really uh, meaningful to me. And in uh, Worlds Apart, you probably remember, they start to kind of edge up on the Steiner stuff. And, yeah. and Barfield very winningly has one of the characters say like, oh, this is your crazy Steiner guy. Like, you know, there, there's <laughs> uh -huh. like some acknowledgement that all of this is a bit yeah. out there. And I admit that that has been my sort of hang up or hesitation. And I, I'm not exactly sure why it is that there's that aura around him. Um, but, you know, I, I, it took me sort of getting to know Barfield more to sort yeah. of feel that I wanted that route in. And then maybe because I had had all of this Sturm and Drang around him, I was quite surprised at how sort of lucid and straightforward it, it all. I mean, I started with philosophy of freedom. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was when he started talking about thoughts emerging from things like uh, flowers out of seeds mm -hmm. that I sort of was like, all right, well, you know, I guess I'm sold because um, that's just to, the, to me such a clear and perspicuous and simple way of getting across exactly what we're all kind of trying to say you know this is almost like risking your reputation when you talk about this stuff and you have a big <laughs> right even like these five minutes it's such it's so hot to touch for so many people you know yeah i i think i'm too far gone i mean anybody that that knows me already knows okay. that this is like my i mean I, at this point i'm doing podcasts about how like you know the the past of the cosmos comes into being in the present when we observe it like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. i think if you're if you're on this train with with me or with any of us, but, but here's the thing, though, is that uh, if you go there, a lot of people will be like, yeah, you know, it seemed too crazy, but I really have been like kind of feeling some of this stuff myself because the dogma of objectivism is so strong that 
it actually prevents people. I mean, that is, I think, what creates the sort of aura of mystery around Steiner and the aura of fear around talking. There's about an issue that. of courage there too, right? You know, Absolutely. we need we need courage. And yes. uh, and Michael, you you know, you see this throughout the university, but um, this fear and this courage—that's why people can't do it. You know, they're oh, so academia, they're so worried yeah. about looking like a lunatic. Uh, academia is it's a it's a herd mentality, yeah. right? Everybody's, but the thing is, I mean, and but I found this because. You know, and I think my my career, even as a Waldorf teacher, well, long ago, thirty years ago, I tried to at first I tried to be like a real Waldorf teacher by the book, mm. and after a couple of years of that, I was like, okay, um, this sucks. I'm either <laughs> going to teach like I want to teach, or and lose my job, or I'll go work at the post office. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, and that was transformative because all of a sudden I became a really good teacher, and then you know became a master teacher almost right away. Um, and but the same thing with teaching in college you know you 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 or the university you you know i by that point i was i was already trained out of that idea to try to do it like everybody else and just try to you know what and this is what you tell people right if you're going to teach you know if you're not interested and enthusiastic nobody else will be hmm. right you, you won't be filled with the god yeah you won't have any enthusiasm hmm. um and that's what ignites students. In fact, so yesterday, one course, I was teaching. Uh, I'm teaching. I'm teaching them about how to write a review essay, and I used uh, David Bentley Hart's uh, review essay of *The Secret Commonwealth* hmm. of, of by Robert Kirk, the one about fairies. Yeah. So it gets into a discussion about whether or not we can you know, fairies exist, and and they're looking at me for a second. They're like. Is this really happening in college? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I said, well, and I said, how many, you know, I asked them, who, you know, the show of hands, who believe it's possible, who didn't think it was possible. They, they're like, I'm just not raising my hand. I've always enjoyed, I've always enjoyed the moments where I've got four kids, they all went to college around the same time, where they would come back, and I don't know if they were drunk high or both. But they just go like, Dad, my friends and I are kind of looking at your writings, you know. <laughs> They're like, you're really weird, man. And that's yeah, what, I guess. What, what I was going to say is then what happens is, and this is, I'm sure Spencer gets this all the time, you get people who kind of come to you after class or yeah. via yeah. email and say, you know what? I'm so glad you're talking about this stuff because <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody wants to talk about it, but I've been feeling this is a thing and I, I need to pursue this. And they're yeah. looking for a community. Yeah, I I sort of think what it is. <laughs> so I have this pet theory that the Middle Ages are to us what classical antiquity was to the first generation of the Renaissance, like the the Petrarchs of of the world. Okay, um, which is to say that for Petrarch and many of his sort of intellectual heirs for Dante or so forth. Um, the classical world represented this enormous alternative outlook on life, the universe and everything that had been sort of thrown out with the bathwater, that it had certain problems, which the church undertook brilliant. to solve yeah. by simply sweeping it away and you know who actually says this outright is Giorgio Vasari in his history of of art he says the church okay. mm -hmm. um it was uh, was keen first and foremost to eradicate pagan error from the world mm -hmm. and in doing so it swept away everything that was associated with paganism including the kind of morally neutral techniques that had been used to get paganism across like sculpture and you know these these incredibly refined art artistic techniques which were therefore lost and now that the church has a stable foothold in europe and now that we all have been sort of cured of our pagan error there's nothing to fear from recovering this enormous wealth of cultural insight of kind of artistic tradition and so forth and you know, and we we need to because the church is exhausted, has sort of played out the full measure of its current thought and needs new blood from somewhere. So let's get it from pagan antiquity. And at the same time, of course, they're digging up all this stuff and they're finding all these manuscripts. And mm -hmm. now I feel that the role of, quote unquote, the church in 
hour moment is played by what Michael calls the archons, by sort of this enormous cultural establishment force in favor of scientism and in favor of transhumanism and in favor of all these kind of dead ideas, deadening and dead ideas. Um, and that is why people feel afraid to say, actually, I think symbolism, allegory, um, participation, these things are urgent and real. And it's in the Middle Ages that those things, we find those things most richly and fulsomely expressed. But we have this narrative about the Middle Ages that is the same narrative that the church had about the about pagan antiquity which is it was all in error and it needed to be scrapped entirely don't you um, think there's a wonderful marriage that could be made you know, i'm always yeah. talking about the underworld on this or the marriage of theology with the earthborn tradition of homer shakespeare cervantes and rabelais but yeah. one that i'm seeing in two places is that we i worked with you know at a trappist monastery in the yeah. africa and they had daughter houses in africa you know and for a number of years they they suppressed the african music hmm. And of course, traditions of shamanism. But I see yeah. people are interested in the shamanism now again. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in our own, in the old, in the same American land, mm. you know, another source. And I think it's the Middle Ages need to meet the Native American thing. You know, that's where mm. this Matthew Milliner is really interesting. Yeah. Um, we had yeah. him on the podcast, but the uh, this Native American. I'm just speaking for myself. This type of marriage of what you're saying, because what mm. you're saying is totally brilliant. You know, mm. but you you let something go. And I think there, if there's a marriage of two streams, which would be the underworld traditions of the Native Americans, the underworld of Rabelais, um, and and this thing, that's what we're looking for. Because the Middle Ages bring, you know, the microcosm within the macrocosm. Yep. You know, th yep. That's yep. where we can hang so much. No, yes. That's just me kind of extemporizing. A oh, yeah. I mean, you make me think of – I'm – just a sort of incorrigible C.S. Lewis stan. And so yeah. there's, I, I'm constantly bringing him up, but he does get this really beautifully vis-a-vis -vis the pagan gods, the, the mm -hmm. um, Greek gods. In his space trilogy, there is just, there are a lot of really suggestive passages in which basically the kind of implication is that pagan mythology was in fact in, in error as the church taught but it was an error of kind of misapprehension rather than total fiction or fabrication that, that, that there were forces in the cosmos that were stronger than us. Um, and though they did have a created character, um, but they simply weren't meant to rule. And, and once placed in that sort of ruling position, they became distorted and became false gods and demons and so forth. Um, but there's like a lot of sort of beautiful reclamation of the, greek gods as servants of the one god in that in that book and ultimately i think if we believe that you know all all which is true is of christ and and if we think mm -hmm. that the whole world is being redeemed and not one thing was made without him that was made you know we there's got to be just a world's worth a universe's worth of that to, to yeah. recover in every tradition yeah it reminds uh, me there, that's really a, hopeful there's a moment in uh the Findhorn book i think it is hmm. Which I, I didn't, I avoided reading for decades, but I oh, about a year and a half ago, I caught it at an antique store for a dollar. I'll buy it. And hmm. in there, there's a moment where our uh, uh, Ogilvy Crum, I think his name, I can't remember, they call him Rock. And hmm. actually, he's mentioned there's this famous clip where you see uh, from uh, My Dinner with Andre, where they're talking about, you know, where, where this guy, he meets this guy who's going around planting seeds, give, gives him a little pine seed to go, and tells him to get out of New York while it's still possible. Hmm. And so this rock guy, apparently, he would have uh, spiritual communications or visions of the great god Pan. Hmm. And in one of them, the Pan tells him, I serve the almighty god. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, wow. it's, you know, it's something I'm sure Tolkien or, or C.S. Lewis would say, they, they would lift, lift their, their glasses to that one for sure. Mm. And I think this is what, this is an interesting thing you're, you're talking about here. And I think this is often, I think what, what a lot of what we see right now in, especially in Christian discourse through the internet is a kind of aesthetic fundamentalism. If you know what I'm talking mm. about, where it's a trying to people trying to purify something where if you look at these moments, like, like you're mentioning, like the Middle Ages and, and the Renaissance, and and 
even when Christianity spread to the British Isles, right? It's re really what's what the fruitful thing is the cross pollination that happens between mm. these cultures, where, um, where the, the like like Mike said earlier, where the microcosm and the macrocosm become a, become fixtures in Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages and through the Renaissance, mm. and. Or in Goethe, the East meets West thing, right? Which is the paramount. Well, and and this idea of enchantment, which is mm. often bandied about, but that and you and also you see it in uh, Pico della Mirandola, for instance, mm -hmm. right? The enthusiasm mm -hmm. for uh, a kind of not phony multiculturalism. Yeah, you know, right? Not a <laughs> that's a good phrase. Yeah, a not that's... phony multi. Yeah, so, <laughs> so just <jump. laughs> totally. You nailed it. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, one of my current sort of obsessions is the dawn of quantum physics and that whole generation of physicists, because I think they were coming up against this. You know, they, they, there's all this stuff in their writings that you sort of think, well, like, you know, um, Jakob. Who are the guys you're specifically about. thinking of, like Fermi and... Uh... I'm thinking or, of or generation earlier. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm thinking especially of Heisenberg and Bohr, mm -hmm. but also Schrodinger to some extent, and even Einstein. You know, despite his sort of resistance to what I think are the implications of of quantum, um, but you get things like Heisenberg saying, "Yeah, you know, this is kind of like Aristotelian potentia, like the this mm -hmm. this uh, wave function of." unrealized possibilities that's basically a, a mathematical analog of mm -hmm. what aristotle was on about mm -hmm. and and then it's like you get people talking about well okay so the universe begins with this singularity which means it's a quantum object which means that in order for it to really develop in any serious way it needs to be measured and observed by something outside the universe like what if we posited a sort of authoritative observer who you know and you're just like they're uh, backing <laughs> themselves in yeah yeah like gee Niels, like i i feel like i've heard that somewhere and <laughs> and, and and touchingly it's almost like the lights aren't on upstairs you know it's like there's nobody there's nobody in the house to say at this point to connect this to the tradition because it's the cutting edge of of science, but at the same time, it is this wonderful kind of reaffirmation of all that we thought we had discarded and all that we thought had been lost. And and it I I raise all of this as you talk about non-phony multiculturalism only because um the two things that kind of come back again and again at this point are Genesis, if you're comfortable in the Christian tradition, but also the Bhagavad Gita, right? You know, I am become death, mm -hmm. destroy of worlds. That's the whole Sanskrit tradition, Hindu tradition, which is not limited to the quantum physicists. You get it in Eliot too, mm -hmm. but it, it certainly is of this moment. And I think that that is because the, you know, the richest, deepest soil of basically every culture contains this stuff in it somewhere. Yes. Um, and it, and it just comes back up when, when you let it. Hmm. Well, yeah, so. and, I, and I think you know you point out i mean i i too as you probably anybody who's read my books can tell yeah. have a thing for the, for the the birth of quantum mechanics and uh and the way it intersects with mysticism right right, right. and but and both of them you know i think kind of uh are congruent or reflective of the discovery of phenomenology mm. which yes. allowed phenomena to speak right which 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 uh creates an opening into the world yeah you know and that's what that's yeah quantum physics certainly did that and david bohm i think uh, mm. is just amazing in his in his thinking when i first read him in graduate school i, I don't know <laughs> if i understand all of this book but the parts i understand i really like yeah but you know and that kind of openness and that's what that's what i'm not seeing in that kind of aesthetic fundamentalism right that that it's in various forums on, on the internet and elsewhere. And Michael, say a little bit more about this aesthetic fundamentalism. Yeah, I, I'm missing really, some know, part of it. Yeah, it's like the ortho bros in a sense, right? You're okay, gonna, gotcha. Okay, the whole aesthetic. We're just going to stick to this. Okay. And it's, and it's okay, I was thinking. Yeah, I can use like he has an aesthetic, and I was just thinking of the word in a different way. That I'm 100 percent on board. I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, or you could call it cosplay too. I guess suppose. Hmm. Cosplay. Um, <laughs> I thought we had a yeah, word yeah. for that. Is my point. But yeah. this openness, I think, is uh, it's something deeply needed. And mentioning all those great thinkers of the first half of the twentieth century, 
also, if you look at, um, even though I'm not a big Freud guy, I wrote about him this, this I think it was the last week in my, in my Substack. Is, uh, I like Freud. I like Freud because what a what a creative like a thinker, right? Creative what? <laughs> uh, Christopher Lash. Love you look at, but you look at that, and I mentioned, always talk about this with, with people who are majoring in psychology. They've never read Adler or Freud or Jung or any, and I, you know, and some it's amazing if you read those. Those were some of the greatest writers, mm. just as far as prose style goes and thinkers of the 20th century. Yep. And now I don't, I, I can't think of a, of anybody in that discipline with that kind of broad, well, broad understanding of the Western tradition for one thing, but yeah. also um, this this depth of interest in in the world, you know. And so, you know, often it seems like the and I, maybe I'm wrong, and I'm just not seeing it. But the psychology, the writing in psychology, has has become either self-help or a wing of the pharmaceutical industry, hmm. right? And, yeah, that's well put. And that's and that's. I mean, but you got to think, right? So a lot of those guys were writing in in the face of two world wars, yeah, and the Holocaust, and they were they were they were compelled to return to. The big questions, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And to the and to the and to the crises that you talk about in your book, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Um, this is <laughs> there. I, I I suspect, Michael, that the people who are engaging with these sorts of things at at the kind of broad generalist level that you're talking about just wouldn't count as you know official psychiatrists mm -hmm. or or wouldn't count as kind of at the top of their field because the field has become so inherently hostile to certainly to generalism but also i think to the soul i mean the, it's yeah. kind of the singular irony that the mm -hmm. discipline that is literally named the study of the soul <laughs> has become the one that is I guess like I most... thought of that so clearly right right the study of the soul yeah. and and the healing of the soul right psychiatry yeah. and and these are the two disciplines that in some ways most represent kind of the the annihilation of the soul mm -hmm. um and and so now you get i think these really fascinating people many of whom we've already mentioned the Vervekis, the Pe the Peugeots uh, of of the world who are genuinely venturing out back into this sea you know of of kind of like integrated human knowledge and each of us has our imperfections of course and our limitations but at least we're sort of thinking about human beings as as whole persons mm -hmm. um and yeah i i think there is a real hostility to that in addition to how difficult it is i mean first and foremost it's just hard to like write clearly and and think deeply and widely and all of that um but secondarily there is an actual like sanction on it among academics whose yeah. favorite pastime is to complain that nobody reads their work and then nitpick anybody whose work is read for its kind of generalisms and and inconsistencies right i mean that yeah, is like yeah, that's yeah. sort of yeah so i mean resentment right yes. yeah so i always turn turn back to coleridge right and coleridge said uh you know a man who shows me defects in a work of literature it's not telling <laughs> he you didn't make his works easy to read though yeah, yeah. But, but what he said <laughs> his, his answer was that but somebody who shows me the glories in a piece of literature yeah mm. a favor yeah right and then we don't and that's not some that's not an attitude present in academic culture as it is right now which mm -hmm. is why you think you see people like peugeot or, or verbeke even though verbeke mm -hmm. does have an actual job <laughs> yeah yeah going yeah. rogue right yeah they're taking it they're taking their show on the road because in it's uh academia is too much of a cage and yeah it's too limiting and so that's what i and that's and in fact we've had a, quite a few people on the on the program um, thinking of Arthur Versluce and I can't remember who else we came came about Arthur for sure, mm. talking about you know, well, um, um, can't remember. Well, anyway, that with the humanities cratering in in academia, yeah, 
you know, in a way you can say that this kind of podcast format answers at least some part of that need for, for people who are interested in the big questions that the humanities have traditionally treated right. to, to go. But I think it also um, probably be um, almost like the, the school that um, Thoreau and, and Emerson, the kind of... Mm. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's really they had outside of the mainstream. Yeah. The transcendentalists. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the the epigraph of my book is this passage, which, again, to speak now for the third time of the, you know, of Sophia choosing every book you read um, mm-hmm. at a moment of real kind of personal uncertainty right near the end of my PhD as I was confronting precisely the move that I ended up making, I found myself in the basement of Canterbury Cathedral and stopped upon a pedestal which had a book, a Bible open to the wisdom of Ben Sirach. Hmm. I had either never read or I guess read it the one time I read the Apocrypha through and through, which was in high school. And it was open to chapter 22. Oh boy, no. <laughs> it was open to chapter 40, but oh, okay. I want to hear about chapter 22. That's because... a lot of Sophia stuff, right? Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. right. Um, yes, uh, well, this one is uh, less perhaps sophiological in, in, in a direct sense, but it, it, chapter 40 is, is how different is the one who ponders the law of the Most High? Mm. Um, he seeks out the word, the wisdom of the ancients, and studies the the, the words of the book. And then it just breaks off, and the next line is, listen to me, you holy children, I am like the moon, I have grown full, hear wow. my words, and put forth your blossoms like a, like a flower by a, by a running stream. And, you know, what more perfect... It's all there, yeah. It's the perfect depiction of the scholar, of the role of the scholar, and it's it couldn't be further from sort of the academia that we know and that we're, <laughs> that we're talking about, but it is happening it's just happening as as in some ways it always has it's happening under the radar i mean you got to remember they did kill socrates right like this this is not a favorable endeavor for the world capital w most of the time that's right this is not a deal well do you see i hope you know and again i I don't want to cast myself as a traditional like old geezer or something but uh like in in the you're you're mentioning opaggio and verveki and where uh can you say a little bit something of the lay of the land where you see like even more interesting thoughts? So, you know, when we were talking about the basic format and the Internet versus screens and so forth, you know, it was even when the Jordan Peterson phenomenon first came out. Yeah. You know, it was often it was often mentioned that, you know, this three hour long form conversation is about the length of time of the Lincoln Douglas debates. Right. Mm. And that, you know, the medium is the message. Something wild is going on. Yeah. Um, are you seeing really neat uh, evolutions of things, you know? Definitely. And I would say, actually, that it, not to indulge in cliche, but like age ain't nothing but a number in this respect. Okay. You yeah. know, that that there's a just as criticisms of like the boomers are really more mm-hmm. criticisms of the boomer spirit, you know, of a certain right. attitude that clusters within an age group, but but isn't limited to that mm-hmm. age group. Um, similarly, many of the guys that I would think of in fact there are quite a few elder statesmen among the you know kind of urgent crowd right now in part because one of the things we're missing is mentorship right one of the mm-hmm. things that's really needed is generational continuity um you know manly connection from from one generation to another all of that stuff which which peterson provides another name that comes to mind is ian mcgilchrist you know yeah, just yeah. enormous tomes yeah. of detailed uh scholarship neuro you know, he neuroscience. comes alive when he's asked a good question you, know, you can Absolutely. watch a lot of interviews yeah. where people haven't read the book and they don't get it then yeah. all of a sudden somebody who's kind of engaged he becomes yeah. a completely different man you know? yeah yeah, yeah, and and that's I mean, and and his his book is another, or the the matter with things is another book that you just open it and you're like, oh, I thought I was on my own. I'm obviously not. You know, there's obviously somebody that is at a very high level engaging with this stuff and and writing about it and and plunking for it. You know, putting him putting himself on the line. So you know, the reason that I embarked on my whole like cockamamie theory about the the Middle Ages and the Renaissance is is that that feels to me like an underground society that feels like uh you know this once you perform the secret handshake 
as as Michael and I did, you know, over Traherne <laughs> and as like in some ways as we are doing this conversation, like then you're off to the races. Then it's just like, okay, we can really now we can begin. And I have those sorts of conversations all the time. And they do make me very hopeful, but they do not make me a, sort of an optimist about the the things that people typically tend to ask about, which is like, what's going to happen in the next presidential election? Right, right, right. You know, uh, what's going to happen with with COVID totalitarianism? What's that going to morph into? Like, I tend to be pretty jaundiced about a lot of that stuff. And that's why my book is called How to Save the West, not How to Save America, because I actually don't think it's in your power to like save that stuff. I think it may be saved. You should hope for it, pray for it, work for it. Um, we'll all be like royally screwed if if things go south in that domain. But that's ultimately not the flame that we are passing down. It's it's even bigger than that. It's like a source of even of even of America. And so if if this thing goes into the catacombs, it it'll go into the catacombs, but it, it won't die. I'm I'm very confident of, of that. On that, I am a, a total optimist. Wow, such an That's easy happened way to with say. the Irish monks, right? When yep. you know, how the Irish saved civilization, yes. and they actually did. <laughs> you know, and God they, bless them for it. Yeah, they preserved they preserved all that stuff, all that when 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 it was gone from the rest of culture in, in the yeah. West. So mm. they preserved it. Well, it's probably a good place for us to wrap up. Sounds so, good. Spencer, where can people find you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I am on Twitter slash X for my sins at Spencer Clavin, and there are all sorts of links there. But if you know the the way, I think to get most directly to what I'm doing is to check out Young Heretics, which is a, my podcast. It's on all the platforms you know apple i can't wait to start listening yeah i've I've known your name and everything yeah 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 Yeah, terrific and again Um, i i write a lot for front porch republic but i think they reviewed your book two days ago right they they sure did a beautiful review okay i can't wait to read it really wonderful um and so yeah the book is uh on amazon it's also on audible if you know you're a podcast listener and you like listening to stuff that i did read the book myself for that um and I think that's it. Oh, and I should mention the Claremont Review of Books, which is where right, I'm very editor. grateful to be employed. Yeah, I'm, I'm an associate editor there. And um, I think it's one of the you know better publications on the right, some of the best stuff out there. Um, I do write there, but many other people do as well. So all of that would be good to check out. And what's what's the new book? So the new book, um, I, I don't have a like a pre-sale link yet, so I, I shouldn't be directing people to it just yet but the but the new book um is a an assessment is a, a theology of of quantum physics it's it's basically about what we've been what we've been talking about yeah. and it 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 begins with the greeks so it's sort of a, a longer history um that tries to make sense of how we got where we are on this objectivism stuff and then also tries to in, like infuse a little bit of of light of the mind into um what what's currently happening well we all look forward to the arrival of that one yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, I'm I'm just rounding the corner. I'm finishing the first draft. So great, great. Soon, hope, hopefully, yeah. Well, I know we'd love to have you on again if you're willing. There, yeah. Absolutely, anytime. This has been a joy. Thanks. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. Uh, Michael, have a good week. Uh, when we'll be back soon, and uh, I will post the links to Spencer's works in the uh, in the comment section. All right, have a good day.